Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We are in a series called Work and Rest, where we are exploring these life-giving rhythms God has designed for us. Thanks for joining us. Well, good morning. Uh, Last week, we started a summer series called Work and Rest, and we talked about how work is good for us. It's part of God's original design and plan. And I even had you actually say that out loud, work is good for me. And some of you even said it with feeling. Now, we also talked about the fact that the reason why we need this series, the first five weeks are on work, the second, the last uh, set of four weeks is on rest. The reason why we need these rhythms is because, it's because not only are things different in the workforce, but because the way that we think about work shapes and determines the way we do our work. And so if you're following along in the notes, here's what I hope you see this week is the same thing I said last week. We must recapture these two God-designed life-giving rhythms. We must recapture these two God-designed life-giving rhythms. And we studied Genesis 1 and 2, first chapters of the Bible, and we talked about how we see that God was a worker, that God made us in his image. He made us to do meaningful work with him. He put Adam and eventually Eve in a garden to work that garden with him. God was a gardener and God made us in his image. And so we're learning about how the original design of work was good. So I also said that nowadays in our culture, it's very popular to say, thank God it's Friday. And very few people say, thank God it's. But on Monday, I received a text from someone in this church that just simply said, thank God it's Monday. I was delighted. Then on Wednesday, I got this email. Sunday, I was motivated to tackle my jobs more diligently. Unfortunately, the number of jobs also seem to multiply. I thought, that's exactly right. You come out, you got to, okay, work's good and all that and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden, whew, work just multiplied. And now I'm even a little more overwhelmed, right? And it's easy to just hear Genesis 1 and 2, but we got to read Genesis 3. And what I want to talk to you today is about a better story for work. Because if we come at work with the wrong expectations, we not only will be frustrated, but we will also not have hope. And I don't know about you, but I want to have hope. I want to step into every day with a sense of hope, and I want to have a better story for work. And I've been sharing with you that um, last week I told you that this book by Tim Keller, I think we've got a picture of it, Uh, I highly recommend this book. We've got it out at the Resource Center. I know some of you told me you were going to get it last week. This book, a few years ago, a friend asked me to read it, and it really has impacted me. Because here's what I realize. I can talk to you about how you serve in and through the church, but you know where most of you spend most of your time? Work. So how do we learn to be disciples of Jesus wherever we are, including our work? And so in this book by Tim Keller, who really does a great job of opening the scripture for me and understanding it and seeing it from a different way, he talks about the fact that there is this continuum of uh, ways of thinking about work. I think we can put that up on the screen. If we're not careful, if we don't have the really the the right story for work, then we're going to have a hard time. Do we have that continuum there with cynical and 
all that? Do we have it? Sorry, I, I may not have made that clear. But so, oh shoot, I guess it skipped down. Realistic is supposed to be in the middle there and idealistic is supposed to be on the end. Uh, so, but anyway, uh, we'll get that fixed. The main idea here is this. If we're not careful, we can have a cynical view of work, which is very common today, and I've had it myself, or we can have this idealistic idea of work. Work is always going to be wonderful. I'll get my dream job, and even with my dream job, I'll never work a day in my life. But most of us know that even when you have an ideal job, you still get tired. There's still some disappointing things that still happen. So how do we understand that? So today, I want to talk to you about how work becomes difficult in Genesis chapter 3. And then where do we find the Christian storyline with all of this? So would you pray with me as we start? God, um, we need you to teach us the way to think about life, to think about work, but also how to set the right expectations so that we can deal properly with the frustrations that come, even with our work. In your name we pray, amen. So again, I wanna talk about why is work, if work is good for me, why is work frustrating and unfulfilling at times? I wanna talk with you about that. So if you'd open your Bibles to Genesis chapter two and three, we're gonna look at that today and uh, unpack that a little bit and talk about how work becomes difficult. And out, to my, out to, in my notes, out to the right of that phrase, work becomes difficult, I wrote the phrase, bad news. Have you ever had somebody say to you, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. Which do you want to hear first? You ever had that? Well, today I'm going to choose bad news first and then talk to you about the good news, okay? So here's the bad news we find, and it starts by what God says in verse 16 and 17 of chapter 2. Here's what God said. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Pretty clear, right, instructions? Now let's go to chapter 3 and see what God says there. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and when you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was standing right there with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves." Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, this is classic, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. 
So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. Your painful labor will give birth to children. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, would you read in that first gray box the rest of the passage you want to look at today in Genesis 3? Would you read it with me? Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. That's what he said to the man. So you see those phrases there. And if you're following along in the notes, here's what we need to see if we're going to accept the bad news. The curse of sin entered our world and things fall apart. The curse of sin entered the world right there. Paradise was suddenly disrupted and the curse of sin came into the world. Now, again, just to give you just a little taste of what Tim Keller says about this, let me put that on the screen and, uh, and, and see this. It says, work itself is not a curse, but it now lies with all other aspects of human life under the curse of sin. What do we mean when we say work is fruitless? We mean the experience of work will now include pain, conflict, envy, and fatigue, and not all our goals will be met. This world is not the way it's supposed to be. Anybody notice? Now, by the way, in case you think this is just God talk, in case you think this is just Bible stuff, you need to know that even scientists have tried to describe this phenomenon. It's called the second law of thermodynamics. I'm not that smart. I'm telling you what I've heard. And the word that sometimes we use is entropy. Have you ever heard of entropy? Do you know what entropy is? Uh, Here's a definition. Uh, It says it's the gradual decline to disorder. The increase of disorganization within a system that affects all aspects of our daily lives, also known as the second law of thermodynamics. So scientists have noticed this. And so this means that your hot coffee gets lukewarm. This means that you can plant the most beautiful garden and there's weeds. And so this is some of the news. This is some of the bad news. What happened because of their decisions to disobey God and disorder their love for God, it disordered the world, it disordered their lives. Everything started falling apart and going backwards compared to how it was supposed to be. And I don't know if you see entropy in your life. I don't know if you feel it sometimes like I do, but I do. And I know that there are things that no matter how hard you work, you go, man, I just worked on that. I just painted that and two years later, it looks old. Like what's going on? How come things go backwards? How come things don't always go forward? Like I, you know, how come when I heard my speech at graduation that I can do anything, I can conquer the world that 10 years later I'm going, "Um, I think they overshot it a little bit. Entropy. Now, if you're following along, notice this. The toil by the sweat of our brow, 
Um, we toil by the sweat of our brow amidst thorns and thistles. Did you see that? He said, it will produce thorns and thistles for you. That's what God said. And so now we don't just work, we actually find ourselves toiling. There's actually almost a resistance sometimes that we feel when we go to work. Sometimes that we feel like we're having to push against something. And we are doing it sometimes by the sweat of our brow. And sometimes it's good sweat. Other times it's just like, I'm just sweating and I'm not accomplishing what I thought I would accomplish. Then there's this problem with thorns and thistles. You guys ever seen pictures lately of thorns and thistles? I actually, just to make this a little bit more visual, I just got some really handy dandy pictures this week. I mean, there's some thorns that I wouldn't really want to get caught up with. And here's some thistles. Boy, these are really beautiful in a yard. And, uh, and then things like this, you know, that's sharp, that they, they hurt. They, 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 they are not the way it's supposed to be. There's weeds in the world. Anybody noticed? There's entropy. And some of you are going, Jeff, I, I came to church for excitement or at least some kind of uplift, and here we go. But if you're following along, I want to tell you there's another place in the Bible along with Genesis that testifies to this same reality. And we got to like face it head on. And if you're following along, here's what it is. Working under the sun, that's the phrase, working under the sun can lead to despair. Again, this is where we can become cynical and we can actually, it can actually make us so frustrated that we just want to give up. Say, what's the use? And that's actually the testimony in Ecclesiastes, the author of Ecclesiastes, if you've never read it, we actually studied a few years ago. He said, look, I'm gonna try and figure out everything possible in this world. I'm gonna give myself to building things. I'm gonna gonna give myself to planning things. I'm gonna take pleasure and follow it all the way out. I'm gonna take money and follow it all the way out, and I just wanna see where it takes me. Now, here in Ecclesiastes 2, here's verse 11, It says, yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. You go, that guy's having a bad day. But here's some more. If you look in the middle of your notes there in that second gray box, would you read that with me? What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. Now I mentioned that in Ecclesiastes 2, 17 through 25, out to the right of that line, that there is this phrase, and it's used five times in those verses. And here it is, under the sun, under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. What does that mean? That means he's saying, look, if this world is all there is, If there's nothing above the sun, then everything I do under the sun, after a while, I start realizing I'm just spinning my wheels. I'm I'm not, it's not going the way I thought, it's not as fulfilling as I thought it would be. It's not accomplishing all that I thought it would be. And work is becoming difficult. It's toil, it's labor, it's, it's, you know, while I may have some good days, I have a lot of days where I go, what, what is the use? And there's this cynicism you can just feel in his words, right? And so if you're following along in the notes, here's what I hope you'll see is that without God, work becomes fruitless, pointless, selfish, and idle. Work without God becomes 
fruitless, pointless, selfish, and an idol. Here's some more quotes by Timothy Keller. When we work, we want to make an impact. But whether quickly or slowly, all the results of our toil will be wiped away by history. All work, even the most historic, will eventually be forgotten and its impact totally neutralized. In short, even if your work is not fruitless, it ultimately is pointless if life under the sun is all there is. Work under the sun is meaningless because it does not last. And so it takes away our hope in the future. And here's one more sentence that he says, you should expect to be regularly frustrated in your work, even though you may be in exactly the right vocation. Does anybody just need to hear that it's not surprising if you're frustrated sometimes in your work? It's because if this is all there is, if this is the story, that there is only what I can see, observe with my five senses, and that all of life is contained under the sun, if there is nothing beyond that, then that means that as soon as I die, that it will not be remembered, it will not make a lasting difference. We talked about this in the Ecclesiastes series. Someone has said, most of us do not even know the names of our great, great grandparents. Now that's sobering. So at that point, it makes us say, you know, Jeff, I was really trying to get a reason for getting out of bed tomorrow and you've pretty much taken it away. Now, I'm just trying to say, we have to face the facts that they're part of the story is this is part of the story. That means that we're gonna have to learn how to find hope in the midst of this reality. This is the bad news. And let me say this too. The truth is, it, Adam and Eve weren't the only ones that contributed to the thorns and thistles. That story has been repeated in every human being, including me, since the beginning of time. Whatever they brought in the world, I've continued it. And I've seen how my desire to do life without God also makes things fall apart. And so what do we do? John Mark Comer in his book, Garden City, says we can't find happiness or satisfaction or whatever it is that we're searching for in work or in rest apart from God. So what does God say is Genesis 3, the end is Ecclesiastes 2, the end of the story? No, guess what? There's more in the book. There's more in the story. But I wanna make sure that we're not being idealistic when we talk about work, that we're not also falling into cynicism. It's very easy for us to ricochet back and forth to these extremes. But what I read uh, recently is a really good, helpful thing to think about before we talk about the Christian storyline. Tom Nelson, in his book, Work Matters, writes these words. Jim Collins, in his best-selling book, Good to Great, recounts the story of his interaction with Admiral James Stockdale, Stockdale, who as a young man spent several years as a prisoner in the Vietnam War in what was dubbed the Hanoi Hilton. When asked by Collins what the difference was between those prisoners of war who lost hope and gave up and those who endured such a torturous existence, Admiral Stockdale was quick to reply. The difference, he pointed out, was a kind of hopeful realism. The idealistic prisoners who convinced themselves they would be home by Christmas 
simply caved in when Christmas after Christmas came and went. But those prisoners who prepared themselves for the likelihood of a long and difficult captivity, yet believed they would eventually triumph and make it back home, were the ones who survived. When it comes to a lifetime of work, Tom Nelson writes, I believe we need to cultivate a hopeful realism if we're going to thrive in our work. Your mind may be filled with idealistic phantoms of the perfect dream job. You may be encountering great difficulties in your work. You may be feeling deeply disillusioned about your work. You may be sensing a growing lack of contentment in your work. You may be going from job to job because the grass seems greener on the other side of the work fence. But how are you approaching your work? Are you viewing your work through an idealistic or a realistic lens? A perfect job or career is not only unrealistic, it is theologically untenable. Even if you are blessed to have your dream job, I can assure you it will be hard and it will not be all you long for it to be. Whatever work we have been called to do will be a mixture of both the good and the not so good. We must recognize that at this point in redemptive history, our work will not be all we want it to be. Is that helpful just to hear that? That's realistic. And so what is the Christian storyline? I'm ready to hear it. I don't know about you, but here's what it is. If you're following along, in his book, again, uh, Every Good Endeavor, Tim Keller says this, the Christian storyline is creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Now I'm going to give you a little time to write those massively long words, but the Christian storyline is creation, the fall, redemption, and restoration. So, so far in this message, all we've been talking about is that the Christian storyline is creation and fall, the fall. When Adam and Eve fell in the garden through their sin and the curse of sin was brought in the world. But did you know that there's more to the story? There is the promise of redemption and there is the promise of restoration. Have you um, ever heard Billy Graham years ago said that he was an optimist? And they asked him why and he said, because I've read the end of the book and God wins. We win. Have you read the end of the book lately? I did that this week. Look at Revelation 21 and 22. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And here's Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible. No longer will there be any, what friends? Praise God. The throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. Notice, we will serve in heaven. We've got work to do, but we'll be serving him face to face. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. We have a better story. God has given us a better story and it started with redemption. You know, when God finished the work of creation, he rested. 
But that didn't mean all of his work was done because now, because of the fall, the work of redemption is going on. And so Jesus, when he was on the cross, dying on the cross, do you remember some of his last words? It is finished. What was he saying? My part in redemption, the work that I needed to do in order for people to be redeemed from the curse is done. I accomplished it with my sacrificial death, substitutionary death in their place. I did it. He was a victorious in the midst of the terrible, cruel cross. He shouts that, and that redemption is still rippling, friends. I just want you to know what Jesus did on the cross, the effects and the power of it are still changing people's lives around the world. And hopefully you've been touched by his redeeming grace. But notice this, if you're following along, Jesus came to break sin's curse and live in us by his spirit. Jesus came to break sin's curse and live in us by his spirit. This has helped me at times to understand we use the word sin sometimes so much we don't necessarily know what it means. It means to have an independent spirit from God. We were made to do all of life with God, but instead what sin is, is putting the, remember the center letter of sin is I, and it's putting ourselves in the center of the world instead of God. And when you and I do that, that independent spirit is the problem. And that's what happened in the garden. They decided to go, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna do different than God said. And so when that's going on, notice that what happens is, is that as soon as they choose to do that, now they're turned in on themselves. Do you notice what they start doing? It's their fault. It's their fault. It's not me. And they start becoming consumed with themselves. Sin turns us in on ourselves. It does for every one of us. It does for me. But grace and God's redeeming power, Christ now living in us, turns us outward. And now we begin to be different. And so Galatians 2.20, I've listed out to the right. In the church that Trish and I, when we were first married, the church there in Wheaton, Illinois, we used to quote this every time we took communion. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, in the body, I live by faith, by trust, by dependence in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself, gave himself for me. That's how I live now, Christ in me. Colossians 1.27 says, this is the mystery that God has revealed to the world, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Sometimes when I've prayed with some of you, I've just said, God, thank you that you made it possible that now your son Jesus lives inside this person by the Holy Spirit. And it just gives me a sense that means that what you have to face today or tomorrow, he's gonna help you because he lives in you. He lives inside of you. This is a way better story. This isn't about us trying to perform up to God. This is God coming down to us and now through his grace and forgiving us, he can now live in us by his spirit. And we have a whole different sense that we're not alone. This is powerful. It also tells us in Ephesians 5 that we now have the Holy Spirit of Jesus living inside of us if we've been saved and born again by faith. And that means that when his Holy Spirit comes into our lives, it doesn't mean he always controls us. That's why some people go, how come sometimes Christians don't live like God's controlling them? 
because we need to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. And being filled means being controlled by the Holy Spirit. I can have the Holy Spirit in my life, but it doesn't mean I follow him. It doesn't mean that I'm controlled by him. And so each day I need to be keep being filled with the Holy Spirit, controlled by the Holy Spirit and cooperating with him that way. But if you'll read that passage further in Ephesians 5, 18, it then goes on and says, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and then make music in your heart to the Lord. That means that now, if you're following along, the good news of the Christian storyline is that because he's making all things new, we have hope and a song to sing. Because he's making all things new, we have hope and a song to sing. Now, I'm going to come back to that in just a little bit. But you and I, when we're working and we're doing work that may not be fun some days, anybody relate to that? I've had a few of those days. We still have a song to sing. We still can sing and make music in our heart to the Lord. It may be a song like, oh, God, please help me do this today because it's not fun in any way. But we got a song and we got someone to sing it to and we have hope. Because he's going to be making all things new. I love when Jesus was talking. He said, one day, at the renewal of all things. What a great phrase in Matthew 19. One day, at the renewal of all things. God's up to something. And although we don't see it fully formed yet, we can see green shoots of grace coming out in different places. We can see the snow melting in certain places. God is reversing the curse and he is going to make all things new and we can work in light of that hope. Now, the last thing I want you to see in this section is that now we work for his glory and our labors not in vain. Now we work for his glory not our own, and our labor's not in vain. Next week, Pastor Brian's gonna teach us and talk to us about a new compass for work. He's gonna talk a lot more about what this may look like, but what I want you to see is that if we now are turned out and now we live for his glory, now all of our life is a thank you to God. It's not a way of performing for God or trying to impress God, but now, God, in light of you redeeming me, in light of you giving me this gift of now living and dwelling in me, show me how everything I do can be thanks, thankfulness to you. Show me how to do it for your glory rather than trying to make a name for myself. And as we talk about that, when you and I have that mindset, that means that once we're connected to God's work, when we connect our work to God's work, it will never be in vain because it will last. And 1 Corinthians 15, I've listed out to the right there. It says this, therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because you know that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Somebody goes, well, is that just for church work? No, in the Lord, any labor we do is not in vain. And that means we can keep going. We can keep walking steadfastly. We can be faithful. Would you mind reading that third gray box there, verse uh, 31 of 1 Corinthians 10 with me? So whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Rick Warren, pastor at Saddleback Church and who wrote Purpose Driven Life, he uh, was telling years ago when they were first planting that church, they eventually were like in 74 locations before they got a building. 
So they had to rent all the times. That meant setting up, tearing down every Sunday. And he said in the summers, a lot of people were gone. So that meant that not only did he have to preach three or four times, but he also had to help us set up and tear down. So one, one Sunday, as they were tearing everything down, he just said, oh God, this is really getting old. And he said, I, I just heard God whisper to me, who are you doing this for, Rick? And he said, well, for you, Jesus. And he sensed the Lord saying to him, and it doesn't matter. As long as, you, as you, if you're doing it for me, it'll be worth it. But who are you doing it for? And I have to ask myself every day, who am I working for? My boss? Myself? Some other reason? If it's for him, if it's, it's for his glory, then we can actually enter into it. So let me just tell you, we have some people in our church that really are good examples for me in this area. And one person, the person that actually suggested I read Every Good Endeavor was a man named Mike O'Shea. And for the last uh, several years, Mike O'Shea and I have been taking, we've probably taken 125 people through the book Every Good Endeavor um, at his um, O'Shea University. But we've asked him to share a little bit of his testimony of how God's changed his mind about work and helped him see it differently. If you've ever seen the O'Shea construction trucks around, you've, you know a little bit about Mike. Watch this, if you would. So I'm Mike O'Shea, and I am president of O'Shea Builders. I have been here 44 years. I've held every position in, in between truck washer and, and where I'm at today, and it's, it's been a fantastic journey. And for the lion's share of that, I was honored to walk alongside my dad uh, for many of those days. You, you know, my dad used to say we were born to build, and there really uh, is a passion in our family for the work we do. And so as a young person, I, I, you know, after I recognized that I would never play outfield for the St. Louis Cardinals, I saw this as my only option. Not because I couldn't do any other things, but because I didn't want to do anything else. And, you know, Greg Syverson was a good friend of mine. He actually served an apprenticeship at O'Shea. And I'll just use him by way of example, but there he is in a third world setting, you know, winning people to Christ in very difficult circumstances. And I live a comfortable life doing work that I really enjoy. And I was always had this nagging sense that I couldn't really be doing work that God valued if I was doing something I enjoyed. And through a number of conversations with Pastor Jeff and uh, the reading of the book Every Good Endeavor, which really solidified it for me, I came to recognize that God ordained work and He has given us work to do. And in doing that work, in some way, shape, or form, we're providing for God's people. You know, when we think of God's kingdom, um, one of the clearest definitions for my simple mind I ever heard was Rick Warren talked about God's kingdom is anywhere where his will is being done. And understanding it in those simple terms has allowed me to really recognize that uh, I don't have to move to Mexico or, or, or some other place for God's will to be done. There is ample opportunity for it to be done here in Springfield, Illinois, because he loves the citizens of Springfield, Illinois, as much as he loves any other zip code. And so um, through the work we do, I think we're able to bless the lives of others. Um, you, you know, one of the most gratifying things for me is um, when we do healthcare work and we're leaving that space, 
you recognize that lives are going to be saved in that space and, and, and that is an incredibly good feeling and when we build a church at some point there's going to be an altar call inside that church that somebody responds to and it is going to impact their eternal life and I'm always quick to point out that you know we don't perform the surgery and we're not responsible for the altar call or anything like that we're simply a facilitator in the process when I consider the future of O'Shea perhaps beyond my lifetime I you know of course I want us to continue to be esteemed in, in our field of expertise as builders but Again, I want us to be remembered for this spirit of human flourishing. And next week, I'm going to be speaking to the group at large at O'Shea, and it's time for the mid-year reviews. And I'm going to challenge our team to think about it in terms of Paul, Barnabas, and Timothy, a mentor, a best friend, and someone that we are mentoring. And when I think of the future of the organization, I hope we're creating a culture that is constantly a best friend to somebody and also reaching back to pull somebody alongside them as a loving mentor because I believe that inside O'Shea and Out we have an enormous opportunity to make an impact in the community that way. So I'm going to talk to you more about what he decided to do with his resources and with his calling in a couple weeks. But again, he wanted me to make sure you knew that coming up is going to be an invitation that if you're able at 6.30 in the morning to come for the hour hour that we have done this with other people to come to their campus and he'll buy the book, he provides the breakfast and he wants to help people have a redemptive view of work. And it's been just incredible to see so many different business leaders and different people in our community go through this. And uh, again, it's just an amazing thing. But let me just close out today by talking about how we connect our work to God's work and God's work to our work. So if you're following along, here is the practicing the rhythm. We've talked about the bad news. We've talked about the good news of the Christian storyline. But today... When we think about doing work God's work, work God's way, practicing the rhythm of work, what does that look like? If you're following along, it means working with you, Lord, and through you, Lord, so all glory goes to you, Lord. Working with you and through you, so all glory goes to you. I want to make sure I talk to you about just the fact that it's an ongoing situation for me. I have here a photocopy of something that happened in 1984 the month that I arrived here in Springfield to be a youth pastor. Um, I, had, I told you last week one of my jobs was sales. And when I was working sales, um, I hated it. I did really good at times, but what was hard for me about it with my personality is, is that every day I had to like work myself up again to try and just make the calls and keep going and stuff like that. And so there were times I didn't have a very good attitude and uh, I knew that I probably should figure out some other work, right? But in the meantime, what did it look like for me to be faithful? So I struggled with that. And I didn't always get it right. And when I was getting ready to leave there, the Lord showed me that I had not worked eight hours work for eight hours pay. That I had actually robbed my employer at times by my laziness, by my apathy, by my bad attitude at times. 
So Trish and I, again, newly married, we didn't have a lot of money, and this is, again, going to tell you that, you know, inflation was going on even back then, but I felt like we were supposed to, I added up the number of hours that I thought that I had probably not worked fully. And I, I told my wife that I felt like I had failed in this way and that I needed to write a check to my, my, the owner. And I wrote a check, and it was a pretty large check and scared me, actually. And I mailed it off, and I apologized to him for what I had done. And I have this letter that he wrote me. He said, Jeff, I cannot recall when I was so touched as I was by your example of forthright honesty. This was certainly the act of a true Christian, not a perfect one by any means. Last evening, I related your story to our prayer group, omitting your name, and all agreed that you would be profoundly blessed. Jeff, we will accept this amount from you in the spirit that you have given it. However, this is your self-evaluation and not ours of you. You will undoubtedly serve the Lord well as a youth pastor. The owner wrote that to me. Now, all I want to say is, is that if I'm standing up here, if you think that I haven't struggled with work, I've struggled with work. But from that day on, when I arrived here at Terry Hills, I always found myself in saying, what would it look like for me to work, even on certain days that are boring, to exceed expectations rather than just doing the bare minimum? And when you and I go in with that kind of approach, it can change everything. Um, one more quick story. I was actually um, in our house when Trish and I bought a little house uh, in, in, after we moved here. And we had had family for a weekend. And I think we'd use every dish in the kitchen. Well, she was teaching preschool. And in those days, Monday was my day off. And so I, here I was, I was in the house and I, I looked at that kitchen. And I remember thinking, boy, I, I can't wait till Trish gets home and takes care of that. And the Lord said, I want you to take care of that. And I went, hmm. You know, again, like I talked last week, you know, really this immediate, I'll serve you Christ attitude. No, I didn't have it. So as I looked at all those dishes, I started, I just put dish soap in there and I started washing them and I kept thinking, man, this is hard. This is not fun. Now all of a sudden I thought, what if I sing while I'm doing it? And I, I actually created a little song and it went like this. To the glory of God, I choose to be thankful to the glory of God, I live today. To the glory of God, I walk in his fullness, honoring Jesus each step of the way. And I just kept singing that song. And I found that actually the dishes went better because I was connecting the work to God's work. And you and I can do that too. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information about our church, visit our website or find us on Facebook. Have a great day.